This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. And we are back. So as I was saying, the Jewish Literary Festival in Cape Town, for those who have attended, is a fantastic event that is held every two years at the Jewish Center there. And next year, they have announced that their event will be held on the 15th of March. That's the 15th of March, 2020. So save the date for that. And there's a fantastic opportunity for next year to become a friend of the Jewish Literary Festival. It attracts authors from all over the world. And it really is run by the most amazing group of volunteers and this year, as I say, you can become a friend of JLF 2020. And to find out more about that, you can email them on jewishliteraryfestival at gmail.com. Save the date, 15th of March 2020, and start making plans. I know a lot of people from out of town do fly down for the day. It's quite hectic to do that. And if you can, it's great to go for the weekend or to just plan a trip to Cape Town around that. Right, let's get on to our reviewers who reviewed the book Forgiveness Redefined by Candace Mummer. This is a young woman's journey towards forgiving the apartheid assassin who brutally murdered her father. And as Nelson Mandela said, forgiveness liberates the soul. I'll read you a brief blurb of the book as provided by Tracy MacDonald, who are the publishers of the book. Candace Mama was born in Sapphire Town in 1991, and when she was just nine months old, her dad, Glenak Masilo Mama, was brutally killed. Mama was one of the Nelspreit Four, killed by apartheid operatives in 1992. Glenak had been shot and then burned to death by Eugene de Kock, who was nicknamed Prime Evil by the press. Eugene de Kock was a former South African police colonel. He worked under the apartheid government as an assassin, and he headed up the Fluckplast Death Squad. C-10 was responsible for assassinating dozens of anti-apartheid activists. In 1996, he was sentenced to 212 years in prison under 89 charges. In Forgiveness Redefined, Candace openly shares her life with us from her early memories of growing up with her great-grandmother in a small, very rural farming town called Mafeking to adulthood. She shares not only how she came to terms with her father's death, but also her struggles with anger, anxiety, sleepless nights, and bouts of severe depression as a teenager. Candace spent a lot of time researching apartheid because what she learned in school compared to her lived experience were at odds with each other. The history taught in schools chose to gloss over the violence and the number of crimes committed against humanity. In September 2014, the National Prosecuting Authority reached out to the Mama family to inquire about whether or not they would like to meet Eugene de Kock. They agreed. Candace Mama chose to forgive the notorious apartheid assassin, the man responsible for her father's brutal murder. She chose forgiveness and embraced living joyfully. Candace supported Eugene's parole application in 2015. Eugene was released in 2019. The first review I'm going to read you is from one of our reviewers. It's Sarah Cohen, and this is what she had to say about the book. In Candace Mama's debut book, a young woman, wise for her years, embarks on a journey of self-discovery with interesting results. Forgiveness Redefined is Candace Mama's honest and healing story. 
It tells how she found her own way to deal with the death of her father, Glenak Masilo Mama, and also to forgive the notorious apartheid assassin Eugene de Kock, the man responsible for his brutal murder during a sad period under a non-democratic government in South African history. Candace details movingly her journey of discovering how her father died, how this affected her and how she battled depression before the age of 16. We also follow her journey towards beating all the odds and rising above her anger and heartbreak. Candace Mama is today still young, under the age of 30, but has been named as one of Vogue Paris' most inspiring women. This inspiring young author tells how she shed her grief and inner anger and became an inspiration to others. We learn about her unusual childhood, her search for her own identity, and the bond she formed, posthumously, with a father she never had the opportunity to know face-to-face. She also writes about the life-changing encounter between her family and her father's killer. She was keen to meet him. However, her family members showed initial reluctance, but the meeting proved to be a healing experience. This book serves as inspiration for other people to look at their own stories of grief and trauma differently. She offers a pathway of healing for others who suffered similar trauma by sharing the details of her own story. This is a touching, personal story told by a young woman who learned too early about pain and loss. She also learned how to overcome those burdens and live contentedly, taking each day as a gift and an opportunity for growth. She states, It is not time that healed all wounds. It was what we did in that time that could change us. She also adds, tellingly, None of us are meant to be destroyed by the fire, but we have to build on the ashes And when we are able to do this, we should give ourselves a high five, which is a message we all need in the trying, stressful times in which we live. Towards the end of her book, she also cites Nelson Mandela, who stated that forgiveness liberates the soul. And indeed, forgiveness, although difficult, has given Candace healing and enabled her to be the best version of herself and make a difference in the world. Sarah says she enjoyed the book, which was easy to read and left her with food for thought. She hopes there will be follow-on books from this aspirant writer, and she will look out for them. The next review is from our reviewer, Adrian Bogarty. She says it was easy to read the book, but definitely not an easy read. She found at times she had to page back to orientate herself, as the narrative did jump about a bit. She also says that Candace. Um, experienced her first panic attacks at the age of 16, and this is where the book begins. Her description of the panic attack is so vivid and classic that I am sure readers will be able to relate it to either themselves or someone they know. I expected the book to be politically slanted, because even though the blurb says it is about her journey towards healing, we were still talking about Eugene de Kock and how he murdered her father. One of the first statements that caught me was in the introduction, You are not a victim of the events that have happened or to the personal people who have caused you pain. How much better would our world be if everyone remembered this and lived by it? Adrian relates very similar ideas to the ones that Sarah has related, but it is interesting that she picked up quite different aspects to the ones that Sarah did. And it's very interesting to compare different reviews from different reviewers. And I really thank both of these reviewers for contributing their reviews and for reading the book. You too, remember, can become members of our book club. And we'll be back after the break. I love it when you read to me. 
This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I'm back and this is Janice Liebowitz again with People of the Book. I'm here now with Marion Jill Bregman, who we will refer to by her name MJ, which her friends call her. And hopefully I am to become her friend. And MJ, lovely to have you with me. MJ, I'll be chatting to you about the book that you recently read and have agreed to review for us. And the book is Catching Tadpoles, The Shaping of a Young Rebel, which is actually the memoir of Ronnie Casseroles. So what is the actual genre and style of writing of this book? Well, this is his memoir of the first 21 years of his life. He was born in 1938, and it takes us up to the year 1960, which were the Sharpville riots, which I think was a catalyst in him becoming much more involved and uh, joining the ANC. So it's written in the first person as a first person narrative, and he looks back on his life from his earliest memories. And that, that is the style. So you're saying it's actually up to 1960. So it's all the earlier period of his life. Very early. He even recalls little incidents, fragments of memory, uh, from more or less the age of three or four. So this would leave it open for the second part of the memoir, which would be the later phase of his life, I'm imagining. Yes. And why the title? What does he mean by catching tadpoles? Well, he uses the metaphor of catching tadpoles to suggest that memory is very slippery and elusive and you catch bits of memory, especially from your earliest years. Memory is not factual and authentically true. Uh, but you remember snatches of memory, but he says it's difficult to remember. It's difficult, slimy, like a tadpole. And also he was very keen on swimming, and he uses that <laughs> metaphor as if he's in the water and while he's swimming long distance that he's trying to remember some of these memories, aspects of these memories. That's interesting, and often we also interpret memory quite differently when we come across people who have shared the same memories with us, we often do interpret them very differently from those people. Exactly, yeah. So that's that's quite interesting. This is actually his third book, not his first. How, how does it differ? book, actually. Oh, he's written three other books. I'll just give you the titles. Armed and Dangerous in 1993. That was about the formation and development of Imkontwe Wesizwe. And then he wrote The Unlikely a Secret Agent. That was about his wife, Eleanor. And then he wrote A Simple Man about uh, Jacob Zuma uh, and his experience with him in the underground and his views on Zuma. I haven't read those books, I'll be honest. This is the first book of his that I've read fully, cover to cover. And it is different because it's his early memories, his formative years in Johannesburg, basically. And would you describe this as quite confessional? How does his character come across? You know, it is confessional in parts because he doesn't shy away from some of the more difficult memories, you know, as when he behaved badly or he be- got in fights at school or he um, uh, cheeked some of his teachers <laughs> and he behaved badly with his girlfriends and so on. So in that sense, it's... 
a bit confessional. Uh, and he's sort of, he's, he does recall things in a lot of detail. I was actually wondering while I read it, did he have somebody help him research some of those details? Because there are a lot of notes at the back of the book, uh, reference notes. Uh, but how he comes across, um, he wasn't a boy who shied away from conflict. He developed through his mother a compassion for the underdog and the people who suffered in this country. His mother was apparently a very warm and compassionate woman, loyal to a fault to the end of his yes. life. And he hated to see other people being bullied. He wouldn't, um, he never shied away from picking a fight with a bully. Um, and he was, was not an easy kid at school. He didn't do particularly well. Um, and I think he struggled, and this comes out quite strongly in the book, certainly just after school. He didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. He read Jean-Paul Sartre. He was confused about his identity. So it's a bit of a coming-of-age story as well, how you try to find himself in the few years post-matric. And I think those are the people, those young people who do struggle at school and who don't know where they're going after school. Those are often the people who do come to the fore later in life and who do find themselves and who do find themselves with strong characters and stronger personalities and who do, who do develop later in life. Um, you find they may not have have been strong characters in school. They may no. not have excelled at school. Yes. But later in life, that's where they really find themselves. Well, he wasn't a leader. He wasn't a prefect. He got two subs in matric. Well, not everyone can be a leader and a prefect. No, that's true. But in the Absolutely. big wide world, there's more place for, for everyone yes. to, to He have found himself leadership. later, but he also struggled with his views about <clears throat> Uh, what role he could play in South Africa? Could he rise to the challenge? Did he have what it, it took to make that step to become uh, a member of the ANC? Um, I think the catalyst was Sharpville. Um, and he already had a lot of friends at a time when it was very dangerous to do so across the color line. Yes. And he even had a colored girlfriend one stage, and that was defying the Immorality Act. So uh, it was a dangerous time in the late 50s uh, to experiment with these kinds of behaviors. Right. So he, so he always did have that rebellious streak. He was a rebel even at school. So I was going, uh, I, that's the next question I was going to ask. Um, he uses that subtitle, The Shaping of a Young Rebel. Mm. So what were his early influences that shaped those choices and decisions? Was it just that rebellious streak or were there particular influences? Well, he describes certain incidents and events. Again, memory is slippery, so they're fragments of memory. He talks about the very first time he was, he, his mother taking him, uh, downtown near Anstey's. A lot of people of my vintage will remember the old Anstey's and John Orr's. <laughs> I do remember John Orr's. <laughs> I remember John Orr's very well. And <laughs> giving away my age as anyway, well. <laughs> downtown Johannesburg was where a lot of mothers, my mother used to take me as well for tea as a treat. Yes, it was a treat. And and he talks about they saw uh, some thugs 
beating up a black man on the street, a well-dressed black man, and a woman bystander tried to intervene, and she was told to get away. He should have got off the pavement. Who does he think he is? And he cried, and he said to his mother that, you know, he, he didn't want to go to the movie. It upset him a lot, and his mother tried yes. to explain that people are people, and they should never have treated him like this. So those kind of compassions came early. Another time he recalls being very tiny in a playground in which he saw a black man peeking in through the fence at the kids playing and he had a little boy and he wasn't allowed in because it was whites only and he said he cried and he said to his mother take me home he felt very upset so those very early stages and obviously his mother tried to explain and cultivate a feeling of compassion for people whatever their color and whatever their circumstances in life and I think that was some of his earliest influences and then as I say he didn't shy away from conflict and he always liked to rise to a challenge <laughs> He's, he was caned several times at school uh, he describes a caning experience. He got six of the best. Of course, never allowed today with corporal punishment. Oh, but in those days, have no he clue was. What that even means. Um, and those were the kinds of uh, qualities he developed. And he moved in cosmopolitan Hillbrow and so on. He crossed the color line. Mm. And tell us about Casserole's Jewish background and his roots. Look, he came from a very Jewish background culturally and traditionally they were not an observant family by any means but his grandparents on the one side were the Kerns the others were the Casuals they came from Lithuania and Latvia they lived in Yeovil I think he might have started off with Jewish government then he went to Yeovil Boys and then because he was good at the at athletics he went to King Edwards but there was a very strong traditional Jewish atmosphere in the home. Um, his father was very keen on the horses, so he used to go to Turpentine race course <laughs> on Saturday mornings. But there were, and he had a bar mitzvah, and then he joined Habonim for a couple of yes. years until he, and he talks of the JNF had come in in the 50s and the white and blue box in the house to put charity uh, in. Yes, I mean, a box. really traditional Very Jewish traditional home, yes. Jewish home. And most of his friends were Jewish and they strongly identified as Jews. And when, so when did he start moving away from that? When did he start moving beyond his Jewish neighborhood? And when did he start moving away from that? I mean, he, his schooling, his teachers, the other boys, I mean, that was all, he had that Jewish upbringing. It was all yes. Jewish yes. when he was at school and, you know, when did Already he start moving away from that? by the age of 16, he says that he started to doubt, uh, you know, organized religion and uh, supreme being. He well, went through kind a of doubtful age when period. kids start to yeah, question they start to and challenge. Question. And challenge all of that. And so he went through that and he moved away, you know, sort of not, if not in fact, but certainly in terms of his way of thinking and his belief system, yes. he started to move away. Um, he also started to develop attitudes towards Israel. Uh, about two years after he joined Habonim, he went on a Habonim camp, in fact. And then he started to develop some of his attitudes. Um, he was strongly influenced by a couple of people, and particularly he refers to some girls called the Sachs sisters, three of them. 
and uh, they spoke about communism, and he became aware of oppression of people and so on. And then he started to develop his attitudes in his mid to late teens about Israel and JNF in particular. Mm. And does he mention a particular aha moment when he decided to join the ANC and the armed struggle? Was there a, a catalyst for that? It was, no. I would say that he was moving in that direction because at one point he went to Cape Town, another point to Durban. He had a cousin, Jacqueline Ironstein, who was a member of the ANC, and in fact she uh, went to prison um, and she was a first cousin. And then he became more interested in what was happening to her. And it was influenced by her husband, Rowley, I think you pronounce it like that, Arenstein, who spoke to him about oppression and liberty and freedom and so on. And also by the books he was reading. I think he came back to Johannesburg then. He joined a film studio, actually. Of all things, Gosh. he didn't have an academic <laughs> post-graduate, post-matric education, formal education, dropped out of law school, worked for a law firm, dropped out. But he, um, then, um, uh, Sharple, 1960, I would say that was, that the, was one the one catalyst. catalyst to say he's got to do something, couldn't sit by. And, and was he, was he aware when he started to become more active in the movement? Was he aware of the dangers of what he was becoming involved in? You know, I don't think so. That doesn't come out because I really felt that was a shortcoming. I mean, there are others, but one of the shortcomings he doesn't, he was close to his family, doesn't speak about the consequences for them and the dangers to them and him if he started joining these band organizations. And I felt that he should have gone into that in much more detail. What was the impact on his family? Yes, there was a bit of um, irresponsibility Yes, on his part. Yeah, he just flirted with danger. He liked the challenge. And he understood oppression, and he felt that it was uh, – he admired people who stood up, and he became – and his father apparently was even a socialist, didn't know this at the time. But I don't know if you remember Ellie or Eli Weinberg, the communist, who spoke many years later to him and told him his father was a well-known socialist. Yes. So he had those influences, but I really felt that he should have delved into what it would mean for the family. You know, the repercussions on those around mm. him mm. didn't mm. seem to affect him at all. No. He wasn't bothered by that. Um, so does he speak openly about his really very well-known views um, his very well-known pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel views. Does he cover that in the book? He certainly does. And uh, this is the really tricky part because uh, for me as a reviewer, I had to kind of distance myself from the author and, as a person and the author who was writing this text because, you know, it sets up a bit of conflict otherwise yes. because you – you say to yourself, I mustn't prejudge the person. But um, he certainly does. Um, and he, I could I, you know, talk about sections here that uh, I'm going to just read you something here about Zionism. He said um, he'd heard about Palestine from his grandmother, Clara, 
But he felt, he says here, from the time of its establishment, this is on page 78, in the early 20th century, the JNF, Jewish National Fund, in cooperation with the Zionist movement and all Israeli governments since 1948, achieved legal control over 93% of Israeli land being reserved in law for the development and settlement of Jews only. Neither were we aware at that time of its overall agenda as one of the handmaidens of the Zionist state, including aiding and abetting the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people and conquest of further territory by the Israeli Defense Force. So this was already – now, maybe these views came later, but he's putting it into his memoirs as uh, adolescent – that is hugely um, accusatory. Very accusatory. Um, and he speaks about this later as well. He says, uh, my eyes were later opened to the fact that the Palestinian Nakba or catastrophe, the dispossession of land and ethnic cleansing, he uses that term again, of the native population, including the sowing of terror by deliberate massacres to force the terrified populace to flee. This was essentially the planning of Ben-Gurion and other Zionist architects. So he's very vociferous in his views that he could not support Israel. He didn't want that JNF box in the house. He didn't want to be members of Zionist organization. But how did his family react to to his um, very strident and, 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 as you say, vociferous move away from his Jewish background, any any Zionist, um, pro-Zionist feeling and, and into dangerous territory? Well... He doesn't deal with that again, really, what their reaction. He does quote in an afterward at the very end, towards the end of the book, a letter from his grandfather, which was written with a lot of Jewish uh, Yiddish phrases in it, in which he kind of says to him, um, he'd already left South Africa and escaped. And the grandfather says, Oi, Gavalt, God forbid one, th- you know, those Meshuganas would have strung you up and so on. But he says, last piece of advice and you, I won't bother you, you anymore. Get a, get out of Africa, go to America and make your fortune there. Politics is a dirty game. These ANC people you are helping won't thank you in the end. So it's more about the politics and his escape rather than his Zionism. Yes. So to wrap it up, did you actually enjoy the book and would you recommend it? And if so, who would you recommend it to? Look, it's quite an engaging book. He writes, he's got quite a fluid style and he writes much better than I expected. Um, and I would, so that was quite impressive. I would say that it would appeal to people more of my generation. My husband, for example, went to King Edwards in this more or less this time period, and he remembers the headmasters. We all remember what Hillbrow was like, and we remember Musenberg Beach in those days. So it will appeal more to people of my ilk. Whether it would appeal to younger people, I don't know. Not sure. Thank you so, so much for sharing that with us. I've been chatting to Marion Jill Bregman about Ronnie Casrell's book, Catching Tadpoles. I'll leave it up to you whether you want to go out and buy that. I think the jury's out on this one. 
But thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you, and you're welcome. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Pick and Pay, Norwood Hyper have these pocket savings sweet deals just for you. Pick and Pay kosher chicken bry pack for seventy nine ninety nine per kilo. Kosher deli pick and pay fagels mock crayfish at a very low one hundred ninety nine ninety nine per kilo. Pick and pay fresh mince take is just one hundred twenty nine ninety nine per kilo. Fry's traditional sausage five hundred grams for forty one ninety nine. Catch these and many more specials in store. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Norwood Hyper and only while stocks last. Pick and Pay Hyper Norwood, the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. So, you can't make it to the Kabbalah Shabbat concert on Friday afternoon? No worries. Chai FM will bring it to you. Join us on your radio from 3.30pm on Friday as Chai FM brings you the Kabbalah Shabbat concert live from Glen Hazel. Keeping it together with the Shabbos Project. And before the break, you heard me chatting to one of our High FM book reviewers, Marion Jill Bregman, and she was reviewing Ronnie Casserell's memoir, Catching Tadpoles. And if you were listening in, you could hear that she was clearly an outstanding, well-informed reviewer. She was unbiased. She was really objective. And it was a pleasure chatting to her. I'm thrilled that she was able to come in and was willing to chat on air, but that is not a prerequisite for joining our book club. I know that there are many people who don't enjoy being on air, they don't want to speak on radio, but they do enjoy reading. So we welcome any lovers of books to join our book club. Please do email me, books at chayfm.com. Let me know what type of books you like reading, we really get in a huge variety. I know today we haven't really covered much fiction or any fiction, and um, next week we will hopefully be covering a bit more fiction than we did today, which was none. Um, but really, we welcome any book lovers to join our book club. As I said next week, I will be chatting to Zapero. Unfortunately, again, it won't be live on air, but his new annual is out. Maybe some of you have seen it in the shops. It's called Which Side is Up? And I'm going to read you a little bit about what it's about. Um, I know that it's pictures, but here's what it says. Here's what the blurb tells us. Zapiro's annual offering is our duplicity warning, our canary in the coal mine, our national conscience, exposing and revealing, brilliantly appealing, Zapiro does it again. It's been a year of the Zondo inquiry, picking through the debris of the Gupta and Basasa empires, uncovering state capture, while Zuma-era spooks frantically cover up. Pravin Gordon joining the dots as the public protector peddles the rogue unit fantasy. Exposés of Ace Magashula's gangster state, Juju and Floyd's credit card looting, and Iqbal Survey's ego. An election which no party could call a victory. Trump tweeting, Brexit bumbling, SAA tail spinning. Wow, I think uh, Zapiro must have had a crystal ball if you look at what's happening today and tomorrow. I actually saw a funny little uh, meme that said SAA was keeping the Shabbos project with us. 
and ESCOM's financial big hole. President Ramaphosa seems shocked by it all. Zapiro just keeps on zapping. And in case you didn't know, Zapiro has actually just received France's top cultural award, which is really an incredible achievement. He's received the esteemed French order that recognizes a person's contribution to the influence of arts in France and throughout the world. The award itself, and I'm going to attempt to pronounce it in French, so forgive me, it's called the Chevalier des Arts et des Lettres, the Knight in the Order of Arts and Letters. French Ambassador Aurélien Le Chevalier bestowed the award on the cartoonist on behalf of French President Emmanuel Macron on 13th of November in Cape Town. It is said that the French government's Knight of the Order of Arts and Letters is conferred on persons who have distinguished themselves by their creativity in the field of art, culture and literature, all for their contribution to the influence of arts in France and throughout the world. Cartoonists are like an archer, an arrow that can never miss the very centre, the dark spot of the target a long distance away, said Ambassador Le Chevalier during the ceremony. According to the Daily Maverick, the ceremony and award was a celebration of cultural and artistic excellence, as well as a nod to the complex, demanding and at times dangerous work done by satirical cartoonists and the fire of laughter or anger they spark with their ink. So congratulations to Zapiro. This is an incredible achievement for him, and I think we can all be very, very proud. I love it when you this is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Wow, I feel like this has all gone really quickly. So just to wrap up what we've covered in the past almost hour, I told you all about saving the date for next year's Jewish Literary Festival in Cape Town. It's the 15th of March, 2020, and that you can email them if you are interested in becoming a friend of the Jewish Literary Festival next year. Um, Jewish Literary Festival at gmail.com Also I read you a couple of reviews that came in from two of our book club reviewers on Forgiveness Redefined which is published by Tracy McDonald Publishers that's by Candace Mummer about forgiving Eugene de Kock who murdered her father We also listened to the pre-recorded chat, discussion call it what you like that I had with reviewer Marion Jill Bregman, who had reviewed Ronnie Caswell's memoir, Catching Tadpoles, for us. And as I said, wonderful reviewer. It was lovely to chat to her. And again, I cannot emphasize this enough. We are looking forward to hearing from you and having you join our book club because really you are the people of the book. And we can't wait to hear from you. I also told you about Sapiro's brand new annual. It's been published by Jakana. And I'll be chatting to Zapero next week. And as I said, also, we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions that you would like to address to Zapero, I will be chatting to him on Tuesday. It will be a pre-recorded interview as he is only in Johannesburg briefly. So unfortunately, I can't chat to him live on the show next week. If there's anything you'd like to ask him, please send those questions through to me by about 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning. You can email me, books at chayfm.com. You can SMS 34519. You can send them through on Telegram at 0618 951019.
As always, send through what you're reading. I'd love to know. And again, I apologize to all my fiction lovers out there. There was no fiction on the show this week. I will have some fiction coming up for you next week. I know it's getting to holiday time. Everyone is putting together their TBR lists. Do you know what a TBR list is? To be read. How tall is your TBR list? What's your list looking like for the holidays if you've got holidays coming up? Have you been putting together your list for the whole year? Are you looking forward to some downtime so that you have some time to just kick back and relax and read all those books that you've been planning to read the whole year? I know I have. Um, I don't know if I'm actually going to get around to them. But I'd love to hear what you're reading, what you're reading now, what you're planning on reading, what you're looking forward to reading. Um, are you reading this weekend or are you... Spending a wild Shabbos project, Shabbos this weekend. Love to hear about it. So please, will you get back to me? I can't wait to hear from you. Also, um, let me know how you feel about live interviews, recorded interviews. Does it make a difference to you? Do you think it makes a difference to the continuity of the show? Do you like the fact that people come in beforehand and pre-record? Do you like it when they come in and chat to me live on air? How do you feel about that? What do you think that makes a difference to? Let me know how you feel. Tell me how you feel about all the political books that we've been covering. We did cover politics today. And I know that our reviewers of Forgiveness Redefined did say that they found the book less political than they thought it was going to be. And it was more about Candace's own feelings about how she forgave Eugene de Kock and that they didn't feel the, the book covered as much politics as they expected, but um, it did have a political background. Tell me how you feel. I mean, there are a lot of non-fiction books published in South Africa as opposed to fiction books. Non-fiction being there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of sport. It does have predominance in the publishing world of South Africa today. And I know that Jakarta specifically has an award where they go out looking for excellent fiction books because they want to feature those so that people find out about the fiction that is being published because there is such a predominance of non-fiction books on the South African horizon of, of books that you find in bookshops. Also, another interesting point, when you walk into a bookshop, if you do look for a South African book, how do you feel about South African books that have a separate section in a book in a bookshop, specifically fiction, if you're looking for fiction? Should they just be grouped together with other books? Why should they have a separate section? Do you feel that people have a bias towards them if they are sectioned off specifically like that? I know that people do tend to have a bias and think, mm, I know people have said to me, I don't read South African books. I don't read South African fiction. We have some amazing South African fiction authors, and I am going to be featuring those in the coming months. But do you think that that specifically biases people against our South African authors, that they get 
put into a separate section in our bookshops. I'd love to hear your feelings about that. It's pretty much a quite discussed issue, and I don't think our bookshops actually hear us. In the meantime, happy Shabbos Project Weekend. I'd love to hear from you.